Open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you will, today. Uh, I'm not starting the book of Revelation today. We just got off of two years of study. And quite frankly, I, I, just, need, I just need a little space right now before we jump into uh, another multi-year study. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm not saying we won't go through the book of Revelation. I'm just saying I'm not ready right now. So, um, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. We'll be in 2 Peter uh, for the next several weeks after that. Um, I'm going to do a series, and basically the idea of the series is expectations. Uh, what, what are our expectations of the church, um, and, uh, and what are God's expectations of us? And so today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to look at um, this subject of, gosh, what, what should we expect from the church? Uh, what should our attitude be uh, about it? What is, what, what is it all about? As, uh, as you're making your way there still, some of you, um, just by way of introduction, you know, um, I grew up uh, at the beach my whole life. My folks lived in La Jolla when I was born, and shortly thereafterwards we moved to Redondo Beach, and, and basically all my childhood memories are of me at the beach. If you look at all my childhood pictures, we're there. And uh, my dad used to go down, he taught me how to, you know, how to skin dive, how to spearfish, uh, and he used to go down, and he had a saltwater aquarium in our house in La Jolla, and he used to keep it stocked with abalone and lobster. Um, and uh, this is back in the days when you could find abalone free diving, and it was, uh, so my dad just kept it there, because, you know, he couldn't necessarily make it down there all the time, but, but he liked him some lobster and some abalone, so... Um, so he would keep it stocked. Well, my great-grandfather came to visit for an extended period of time, and he just loved and was fascinated by this saltwater aquarium, and in particular, a a lobster that was there. And my great-grandfather would watch this lobster just, you know, for hours on end. He would sit there and watch the lobster. Well, my dad came home one day, and uh, he's bustling around in the kitchen and, and all. And all of a sudden, he comes walking out with a pot of boiling water. And right in front of my great-grandfather, reaches in, grabs the lobster, and drops it into the pot. And my, my grandfather here, he's, he's, you know, outraged by My dad just took his pet, you know, and threw him in uh, for dinner. And, uh, you know, just did not have the same comprehension as my dad. See, my great-grandfather had the wrong view of the tank. He thought it was there for entertainment. He thought the lobster was there for for his entertainment. And what we're going to see today is that the Corinthians, they kind of had a similar view of church. Uh, They they sort of viewed uh, church as being there for them. Uh, What can I get out of it kind of thing. And as we get into it today, the situation here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is this. Paul's writing... To this church, he, he, he planted this church in Corinth. Uh, it's a port city about 50 miles west of Athens. It's a city not unlike San Diego in many ways, in the sense that, you know, uh, it was very prosperous. Um, there was lots of commerce, lots of people, and lots of sin. And, and so what you have there in this society, in this culture, you've got rampant promiscuity, You've got a broad spectrum of philosophies and ideologies, and you've got this culture that's obsessed with materialism uh, and, and, and self-centeredness. 
It's also a city that placed a high emphasis on enlightenment and on philosophy. And as such, what you have here is you've got a, a group of people, a society, a culture that is, is embracing new religions, new ideas, and all into all things sort of spiritual, um, but all things carnal as well. And it was into this city that Paul planted this church in Corinth um, about 52 A.D., and Paul here, um, he, as he planted the church, he actually pastored it um, for, for the first year and a half or so. Right now, in the writing of this epistle that we have, the church is about five years old. Um, but Paul, you know, having been there for about a year and a half, he turned it over to Apollos. And under Apollos' leadership, unfortunately, the church began to go off track. And so now, at the time of the writing of, of this epistle, there's gross sin going on within the church, and there's also massive confusion amongst the people in the church about, hey, what is the church supposed to be fundamentally? And so the question for us this morning and for Paul here in our text becomes, what should we expect from church? That's the idea. Like my dad's aquarium, is the church there for me, for my benefit, for my entertainment, or... Was it created to serve a higher purpose? And if, in fact, the church is created to serve a higher purpose, which, of course, it is, what does that look like in your life? What should it look like in my life? That's sort of the idea here as we come to 1 Corinthians. We'll pick it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says to these guys, Hey, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, verse 2, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, Paul starts out here using two words to define what the church should look like. He uses the word servants, and he uses the word stewards. Now, this word servant, uh, literally the definition of this word in the Greek is under rower, and the idea is the the slave who would be in the bowels of the ship whose job it was to row. The under rower had one job. He sat in the bowels of the ship. He didn't get a window. He didn't get to go strolling around on deck. He didn't go up on the bridge and get to yell commands and bark out orders. No, the under rower had one job and that was Get your head down, get your back into it, get your shoulder into it, and for crying out loud, row. Row the ship, man. And it's not a glamorous job, but it's certainly a vital job. And so this is the, 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 the first word that Paul is using here. He's like, look, you know, the ship of the church ain't going nowhere without an under rower. And so let everybody consider me, that's what I am. I'm an under rower. Well, not only that, but he says, I'm a steward. Now, a steward, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should be familiar with this word. Uh, basically, it means a, a, a servant, and it was a, a particular servant. It was a manager of a household. And the steward was responsible to procure the, the food, procure the supplies for the household, uh, and to oversee the preparation uh, of meals. And in verse 2, what Paul says is that it's required in stewards that one be found Faithful. Faithful. See, the stewards were subjected to random audits and a strict accounting uh, of everything that they did. 
And they, the, the owners did this from time to time just to make sure they were being faithful. It was a matter of saying, look, you know, your stuff ain't yours, man. It belongs to me. So every once in a while, I'm going to pop in and I'm going to eyeball what you're doing. I'm going to ask to see your books. Uh, I just want to make sure that, 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 that you're not being unfaithful with, with that which I've entrusted you with. And so, so this was the idea. And so then they would have to show the receipts. They'd have to provide inventories. They'd have to account for their servants and their supplies. Am I taking good care of the servants? Do I, you know, am, I, you know, am I squandering the supplies? Am I stealing the supplies? You know, those kind of things. Now, Paul here is painting a picture. And the picture that Paul is painting is that, hey, man, the church should look like this. But like my great-grandfather, the Corinthians confused the purpose of the church with the desires of their heart. See, they, 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 they construed and twisted church around their pleasure. They, they kind of created church in their image and in their likeness, and the attitude and their purposes were, well, it shows up throughout the epistle, actually, if you read it. Uh, an epistle is just a, a fancy word for letter, and that's what this is. It's a letter to the church in Corinth. And throughout this letter, the things that Paul is talking to these guys about, what we see over and over again is that the heart of the Corinthians is coming through. Um, shows up this, this attitude of, of sort of a, a wrong focus where the church is concerned in the fact that they're selfish and self-centered. You know, he, he, he addresses them. He says, look, you know, some of y'all are saying, I'm of Paul. In other words, or other sections are saying, I'm of Apollos. And you've got these different factions within the church. And so there's sort of this, this selfish fight that, that you allow in. And what is it all centered around? It centers around what you want and what you like. He, he addresses them in chapter 11 about what's going on in communion. And it's crazy here at the church because what's happened is, is that there's supposed to be Jesus when, when he instituted the Last Supper and it, with, his, with his disciples and he instituted this issue of communion and said, do this in remembrance of me. He explained it very clearly. You know, look, the, the bread represents my body that's going to be broken for you. The, the cup represents my blood that's going to be shed for you for the remission of sins. And so what I want you guys to do is to do this often in remembrance of me. As often as you drink this bread, eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you proclaim my death until I, until I return. So what happens is the Corinthians, they you know, are continuing with, with what God has, has commanded in the sense that they're having communion. But they began to, to have their communion feasts from a very self-centered, sinful mindset. And what was that? Well, basically, they were, they were you know, if you were late, they're like, eh, too bad for you, man. Because, like, you know, if you're hungry, you, you should have gotten here on time. It's because they were eating everything before everybody got there. Not only that, but they would drink all the communion wine. They were actually getting drunk on the communion wine. Now, if you're getting drunk at communion... That might suggest there's a problem with you. I mean, if you're showing up for the communion feast and you're grabbing the communion cup and you're like licking salt and biting a lemon and like, let's go for the, you know, maybe you kind of gotten off track, you know? God's like, hey, this is supposed to proclaim me. This is proclaiming you. 
And so this is kind of where they'd gotten to. And it's like, man, this is, this is messed up, guys. And, and he talks to them in chapter 6. He talks to them about lawsuits. They're suing each other in court. And, and Paul is saying, what a horrible witness. You guys are you're behaving like this, taking one another to, to court and suing one another, and you, you're giving Christ a bad name. Why, why shouldn't you just rather be wronged for the sake of, of not, you know, just dragging Jesus through the mud like that? You got, you know, don't you guys know you're going to be judging, the, you know, in eternity in the, or in the, in the millennial kingdom, you guys are going to act as judges and ruling over God's creation, and you can't even judge yourselves. And so, again, this had shown up. Their religion in, in chapter 14, where Paul's like, oh, man, the way you guys function in church, like you're all about, oh, look at me and my gifts, and I want it all to be me. And he's like, each of you has a psalm, each of you has a teaching, each of you has a, a tongue, each of you has a revelation, each of you has an interpretation. And it's like, you know, me, 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 I want the focus, I want to do everything, and so, so there's, there's this, this problem in Corinth that with, with I mean, you guys don't understand the purpose of church or what it's all about. And, and, and the big problem, you know, really is that you have become puffed up and everything is supposed to circle around you. And, it, and sadly, it's not unlike a lot of churches that we see happening today or, you know, really, every church has this problem with certain individuals to a certain degree, to where we can, church can become about, you know, about all the wrong things, where it's like, you know, I'm shopping for a church, it's like, you know, what, what kind of children's ministry does it have, and what, what kind of programs do they have, and do I like their worship, and, and, and while these things are important to a degree, sometimes we elevate these things up above the main thing, and the main thing well, the main thing is that the, the body of Christ is supposed to all be together, working together. When Paul gets to chapter 12, he's going to say this. I'll put it on the screen for you. He tells the believers, hey, there should be no schism in the body. He says, but that the members should have the same care for one another. No divisions be, between you. Peter likened the church to living stones. He said this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 and 5, he says, Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's heart here articulating, we're supposed to all fit together as, as a stone that's fashioned for a particular work. You have a place within the church that you fit, and you have a job to do there. You're not, you know, a stone isn't part of the structure because, because you know, it exists to be entertained or taken care of. A stone is there to serve a functional purpose for the assembly of the entire house. And that's what Peter is saying. Look, you're a living stone. You're being built up into a holy temple. And your job here as a believer and a follower of Christ is just that, to do the work that God has given for you to do. The Bible says that we, that we are God's workmanship. 
that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so there is this dysfunctional thing that we need to do. Now, let me be perfectly clear, and this is in my notes, but it just strikes me that I should, I should clarify this and make sure. Look, I'm not talking about any sort of work that you need to do to earn a right relationship with God. That, that is attained by Jesus' work. It's by grace, through faith, that we are saved. And so we're not talking about salvation when I'm talking about the work and the role that you have to play and the living stone that you are in the body of Christ. I'm talking about what happens after you're saved. Because, you know, and as I've well said here before, look, a lot of people, they live their life with a theology that is articulated in, hey, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. And, and that's, that's fine, except for it, it omits the biggest part of your life, which is the space in between. I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. It was just about, if it was just about you being saved and going to heaven, you would say the sinner's prayer and you'd be gone. God would take you out. Why doesn't he take you out? Because you're a living stone and you're supposed to be part of the body of Christ where you now begin to focus on the work which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in it. And at this point, I think it would be a good point, a good point in the message for me just to ask you a simple question and say, are you? Are you actually functioning as a living stone within the body of Christ? Is there something that you're doing that God has called you to do or not? See, a lot of times we consider sin and we so often we think of sins in terms of, you know, I, I, I did this and I shouldn't have done that. A sin of commission. But there are also sins of omission where we are going to stand before God and he's going to say, you didn't do what I called you to do. And so we need to understand that, you know, there are roles and responsibilities for us. And so here in these first two verses, Paul's reminding these guys, look, the church isn't yours. It doesn't belong to you. It's not, it's not there to, to, you know, it's not the customer is always right kind of attitude around here. How can, how can we serve you? No, it belongs to God, and our job is to take our orders from him as an under rower. Get in the bowels of the ship, put your head down, put your shoulder into it, and get to work. That's the idea, because we, we have this responsibility as an under rower. Also, Paul says, look, we have to be a steward. It, it doesn't belong to you. It, 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 it's something that belongs to God. We have to give an account to God. And listen, the day is coming when we're either going to be found faithful or we're going to be found unfaithful. Turn to, uh, to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus teaching here in Matthew 25, he's... he's He's telling these different parables. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And uh, Jesus is, is a, um, he teaches in this way, um, in part because this is a great visual way for people to learn, but also in part, uh, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's a way that when he, when he puts it in picture that, you know, some people, they, they just aren't going to get it, and that's, just sort of how it's going to be. So Jesus here, he, he, he's teaching, and he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who 
called his own servants and delivering his goods to them uh, and delivered his goods to them. Uh, and remember, it all belongs to him. These people work for him. And, and to one, he gave five talents and to another two and to another one, to each one according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now, a talent is a unit of measure to define an amount of money. But for the purposes of us here today, it can be that or it can be just that, that God has given you certain skills and talents that, that uh, also work very well uh, in the telling of this parable. So basically the point is he's got different stewards, people that he's going to entrust his stuff to. And, and he says, look, I'm going to entrust this stuff to you and I want you to be faithful with it. I want you to, to invest it. To put it to work. And so he goes on a journey, verse 16, and then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two talents, two more also. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and he hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he also had received the two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now we'll pause right there. And I just want to point out to you that different men had a different quantity of talents, but the Lord's response to both of them was the exact same. And some of y'all have been entrusted with more, and some of you have been entrusted with less. And it's not that God looks at the person who's been entrusted with more, and who then in turn has more of a return for his investment, and says, I am going to, you know, reward you more than this other person. No, he, he is going to reward each of us according to the ability and to the opportunities that he gives to us. The issue isn't quantity, it's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. And listen, just as the steward that I explained in the definition of a steward was subject to random audits, so too you are going to be subject to random audits in your life. The Bible speaks of two different types of judgment. There's a judgment for those who reject Jesus Christ, but there's also a judgment for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we will also face judgment. It's not the same kind of judgment. It's not a judgment of, you know, you, you know you're, you're going to hell kind of judgment. It's a judgment of, hey, what's your reward going to be in heaven? Your salvation's already determined if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior and are trusting Him by faith. So you're not going to go to the great white throne judgment that the book of Revelation talks about which eventually we'll get into here, uh, you are going to go before what the Bible talks about, the judgment seat of Christ, where your works are going to be judged. And so what happens here is that these two folks, they, they have these talents, they've used the talents. And then verse 24, he who'd received one talent came and he said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man 
reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Now when he says, hey, you've reaped where you've not sown and, and, you, and you, you, you've, uh, you've gathered... Um, uh, sorry, uh, reaping where you've not, you reap where you've not sown and you've gathered where you've not scattered seed. This is how I know you. This is the kind of guy you are. What does he mean by that? Look, for you as a Christian, it's very simple. What he means by that is what we read about in the spirit of what we read about in Acts chapter one, verse one, where, where Luke says, in my former work, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach. And that word began predicates in, in the whole book of, of, of Acts is, is, is predicated on that one work. And what it implies is, yes, Jesus began a work, but his work continues, and it continues through you and me. We are supposed to be his hands and his feet. So when this parable, when this guy says, hey, I know you to be a guy who wants to reap where you haven't sown, what he's talking about is, you have a job that you've given to me and you're expecting me to have some returns on the investment. That's the whole idea here. And so he says, man, I, I, so I, I just buried the talent. I was afraid of all that. Too much pressure, man. And uh, verse 26, but his Lord answered and he said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather." Well, I've not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have had received back my own with interest. What's his point? He says, look, you didn't even do the least, the minimal thing that, that, that you could have done. You did nothing. <clears throat> Implications for us in this is that the day is coming, but you're not gonna answer to me. I mean, you, you, could, you could hear this and go, man, what an what a underhanded ploy that is, Pastor. What, do you don't have enough people to set up chairs or tear them down? You, you don't have enough people to go and, you know, help with a construction project? or that you, You're just trying to lay a guilt trip on everybody? No. I'm telling you what the function of the church is supposed to be. And you, you're not going to answer to me. You just want to come to church and check it off your Franklin planner and go home and never actually do anything to serve God you, don't, you won't answer to me. But a day is coming when you will answer to God. And he's the one who's, who's going to say, look, did you bury your talent or did you use your talent? And look, I don't know what your talent is. I don't have a clue. But you should know how God's gifted you. You should know what God has placed in your path. You should know these things. And you say, well, gosh, Pastor Ted, I don't know these things. Help me out here. okay. Come see us. Fill out a, a serve card. Say, I'm willing to be used by God. Hey, you know what? Just step out in faith and, you know, just start knocking on some doors. God, has, have you gifted me in this way? God, have you gifted me in this way? You know, an interesting thing happened when we <clears throat> started our first church. Um, immediately, everybody began just finding their, their groove and their niche. And I was getting frustrated because, you know, my wife, she, gets, she finds her groove in her niche and she's serving and singing on the worship team and, you know, and, and God's like opening these doors and these other guys are, you know, getting involved in, you know, setting up the sound gear and doing all that and, you know, this guy's teaching over here and, and me, what am I doing? 
I'm just sort of like, it it just varies from from moment to moment. Like right now I'm setting up a chair and right now, you know, I'm teaching in a kid's class because there's a need over there. And right now I'm over here and, oh gosh, guess what? I'm teaching this Sunday. And oh, over here I'm doing this other thing. I'm just kind of all over the map. And I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, what, what? Everybody else has found their niche. And then all of a sudden God showed me, you have found your niche. It's called assistant pastor. That's what you're doing. You're just assisting. You're just going wherever the need is. See, so it's just a matter of saying, well, I'm just going to be used by you. And so this is the idea that's being conveyed here. And so Jesus, continuing the, the story here, he says, Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he, who, uh, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's like, look, you know what? If you're faithful in little, I'm going to make you faithful in more. If you're, if you're good and, and obedient and the things I've called you to do, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pour out upon you. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before kings. And the idea is that God gifts you and he gives you opportunities to use those gifts. And as you're faithful to use those gifts, he will open up more doors of opportunity. And what you will find Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will find it. And so this is the idea here. So again, the takeaway question here is, what has God entrusted to you to steward? Your wife, your kids, your job, your home, the money, the talents that you could be serving here within the body of Christ at the church. And are you being faithful to use those gifts or are you burying those gifts? Now at this point, let me say this. That regardless of what God has gifted you to steward, that everyone has an opinion about how you should do it, don't they? I mean, everybody's got an opinion. The moment that you step out and you start you know, doing what you're going to do and you start exercising leadership in your life, everyone's a critic, Right? We had a situation that happened recently where there was a family and they <clears throat> were taking care of an elderly parent and, and there were a couple of people within that family that sort of stepped up and started to do what they were supposed to do. But there were, uh, there were some other siblings that, that, that hadn't stepped up really to do anything. And then what happened was the people that weren't doing anything we're criticizing the ones that were doing something. Every time they'd make a decision or everything that they're doing, these people are not lifting a finger to, to do anything or to help, but yet they want to weigh in and they want to have an opinion and they want to be able to sit in judgment on those that were, were doing what they're doing. Everybody's a critic, you know? And, and back in 1 Corinthians, that's what Paul says next in verse 3. <clears throat> he says, but with me... It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He says, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels 
of the hearts, and then each one's praise will come from God. Listen, here's what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that as you serve the Lord, as you step out and exercise leadership to some degree, shape, form, some fashion where you're going to use the gifts and the talents that God has given to you and you begin to serve him in whatever role or capacity that is, somebody is going to have a problem at some point with what you're doing and they're going to make it known. The moment that you step out to do that, right? That's what Christians do. Christians, they tell you how they think they're doing, how they think you're doing. And they'll, you know, you get two Christians, you get five opinions, you know? And so what Paul is saying here is, look, it's not that I don't listen to anybody. But ultimately, you can't work for the praises of people. That's what he's saying. And, and listen, here's the point of application here, and this is so critically important, because one of the things that I see, and I talked to the guys about this last Monday night a little bit on uh, tactical leadership, but one of the same things that I'm seeing, and I see it in men a lot, especially young men, is that you're called to lead. And, and, and you, if you're married, you're called to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, that's not a chauvinistic statement. That's just a quote of Scripture. That's God's design. But what I see a lot of men do is that they will step out to lead and what will happen is that inevitably they're not going to lead the way their wife wants them to lead. It's like that line from my big fat Greek wedding. He is the head but the wife is the neck and she can turn the head any way she wants to turn him. And, and, and it's true. I mean, women, I, I always say, they're, they're an enigma wrapped in a riddle and they, they're, they're hard to figure out. And, and, and if you go back to the curse, and I'll tread very lightly here, but if you go back to the curse, <laughs> basically the curse says that women are designed to, to submit to, to a man and to, to be a helpmeet to a man. And the deep longing of a woman's heart is to, is to have that man that she, can, that she can just trust herself to. But the curse is, is she, so she, want, she wants a guy to, to lead her the way she's designed, but the curse is she wants to tell them how to lead. That, that is the, that, that's the basic get that, that women are up against. So what guys do is they, they cave to that. And the reason they cave to that is because what the man wants really more than anything else is he just wants his wife happy. I mean, really, truly, I just, I just want her happy. Now, we're sinners, so it's like, I want you happy that I'm sitting on the couch and watching, you know, Gold Rush. That's what I, that's what I want you happy to be. You know, or it's like, nah, that ain't going to cut it. You know, I can't believe I married you, you know. Um, so, so the man is, is, is called to lead. And, and what a man does often is that when he faces opposition from his wife, he'll cave. And, and you need not to cave. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, you, you mistreat her or that you're harsh with her. But what it does mean is that you lovingly say, look, this is the best decision. I've prayed about it. Sweetheart, you're going to have to trust me, but this is what we're going to do. And by and large, one of the biggest problems I see with marriages today is men don't do that. Men don't step up and lovingly lead when they're in the face of opposition with their spouses. Now, if you would lovingly, can I just tell you that that's what your wife wants? She just wants you to exercise leadership in a godly way. She wants you to be able to say, sweetheart, I've prayed about this and this is what we're going to do. And, and then having the follow through to be able to do that. And so what Paul is saying here in the church is he's basically saying, look, I'm exercising leadership 
Not everybody likes it, but this is the way that it's going to be. So even if somebody's going to oppose me or if they're going to be oppositional to me, I'm still going to do what, what it is that, that I need to do. Now, as a leader, you're going to face three different types of judgment. You're going to face the judgment of others. You're going to face the judgment of yourself. And you're going to face the judgment of God. And what Paul is saying here is, look, you just can't bend to the pressures of different people's opinion if you're going to, in fact, lead within the church or lead in any capacity. But you also can't just rely upon your own conscience and say, well, I think I'm doing a good job. No, what Paul says is, look, I think I'm doing a good job, but when I die, ultimately... I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to give an account to him. So I'm going to keep that in the forefront of my thought and in my attitude. And then that's going to dictate what I do within the church. God owns me. God owns the church. God owns the people. He owns the resources. He owns the opportunities. He calls the shots. And ultimately, he tells me I'm going to give an account to him. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, hey, you know what? I'm a steward, and I recognize I'm going to have to give an accounting. So Paul says, hey, people are going to want to judge you. You're going to want to judge yourself. But in the end, you work for one person. His name is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.13 tells us there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So continuing now, verse 6, here's what Paul says. He says, now these things, brethren, have figure, uh, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written that none, uh, uh, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Now, when he says these things I have written, he's not just talking about, you know, the issue of being a steward and being a servant, but he's talking about things that he, he mentioned earlier in chapter three. And what, what he's saying here, Paul gave four different examples that, that he attributed to himself and to Apollos to basically describe to them, look, this is who we are in the church. This is, this is who we are. This is who you are supposed to be in the church. This is why the church exists. And this, these are the examples that we're giving to you. And Paul says here, I gave those examples, on, I applied them to me and to Apollos, but the implication is they apply to all of us. Now, here's all of the examples that he gave. In chapter three, he gave two other examples. One was that he said, you know, that we're like a garden. He says, one plants, another waters, but God brings the increase. He says also in chapter three that we're like a building. And basically he says there that Jesus is the foundation and we build on top of him. And then of course here in chapter four, he says we're like a servant. We're under rowers. Get in the belly of ship, get to work, man. Put your back into it. And he says we're like a steward. It all belongs to God. He entrusts his stuff to us and he expects that we're gonna reap a harvest, that we're gonna have a return on our investment of his stuff, okay? All of these examples. And so Paul asks in verse seven now, in conclusion, he says, for who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 
such an excellent principle that he's putting forth here. Because what could happen is, is that this guy, you going back to Jesus' parable of the talents, the guy who was given five talents, who invested them, now has ten talents, could get all puffed up and start thinking just about how awesome he is. And this is kind of what was going on in Corinth. That there's all these people in church saying, hey, look, I'm so awesome that I don't care if everybody else is late. All the communion stuff, I'm going to eat because I'm awesome. Uh, you check, you check me out, you know, kind of thing. Pastor Scott, uh, several years ago, he used to own this red Jeep. And it was, it was a cool-looking Jeep. It was raised, big, fatty tires, the whole bit. And, um, and it, it, he bought it for fun. It wasn't a primary vehicle. And, and he says, hey, you want to you want to borrow my Jeep for a while? You can you can use it. You can just drive around. I don't know if you saw my truck and took pity on me or what it was, but he, he's like, hey, you can you can. Do. So Brenda and I we made the summer out of it, man. We were we put our bikes back there, go down to the beach and go ride you know strand cruises on the beach and everything. And man, it was just awesome. So I'm driving it one day and some guy pulls up next to me, and and he's just you know coveting the Jeep. Clearly, he's like looking at this thing. And, and in my heart, I'm, I'm getting all puffed up with pride. I'm like, oh, this, this is an awesome truck, isn't it? You bet it. And God's like, you idiot. It's not even yours, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, you're right. It isn't even mine. I'm just trying. And, and see, that's, that's what Paul's conveying here. That's us here at Reliance Church. It's like, it, it's not even ours. And so what happens is, is that we, Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we, you know, start just being faithful to God, we start serving in Awana, and man, a kid gets saved, or we're serving in VBS, and we, we watch, you know, kids making professions of faith, or, 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 you know, Thanksgiving time, we go and we buy a meal for a family, and, you know, turkey and all that, and we, we go and deliver it, and people are, are, are crying, God's doing incredible work. And just how stupid, how lame is it if we start getting puffed up within ourselves? You know, the, 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 I was telling Zach, uh, my, my son-in-law staying with us today, we were coming down this morning for prayer, and I was just telling him, man, it's just so amazing just what's happening at church, because, like, you know, we, we, got, we got several guys, key guys that are out on vacation right now, and Pastor Scott's homesick, he can pray for him, and, you know, all this stuff, and I said, you know what I know? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull into the, to the church and there's, there's going to be 100 guys down there just serving the Lord and faithfully setting up. And, and you know, here we are. And, and, and how lame would it be, you know, for one of those guys to, to be, all, be all like, you know what? I spent two hours, man, setting up chairs and not one person thanked me. Right? It's, it's not about that. It's, it's just not about that. And, and Paul's like, what, did you, what do you have that you didn't receive? God gave you everything. He lets you serve him. And then guess what? You know, it's like the example I always use when, my, when Megan was a little girl, I, I was painting my fence. She wanted to help me. What did I do? I gave her a paintbrush. Go to town, sweetheart. Did she help me? She wasn't helping me. But in her mind, she was. Right? And, and for us, you know, you know the, the, the analogy has its flaws, but for us in the kingdom of God, God gives us a paintbrush. He's like, you know what? Guess what? This is the way I've set it up. I'm going to do an incredible work, and I'm going to use you to do that work. And we just, you know, Megan had more paint on her than she ever got on the fence. 
but she remembers it to this day, probably because I tell her the, the example all the time, you know. Man, Reliance Church is like that Jeep that Pastor Scott loaned to me. I don't own it. I didn't do anything to, to, to merit it. But I get to drive it. It's by the grace of God. And we rejoice in that. And listen, that's, that's the church, guys. The church is us all together. Just saying, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. Now, let's close. Turn to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to finish up here. Just to your, to your left there, one book. Romans chapter 12. We all know one and two. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now listen, here's what he says, verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. Listen, it's all by grace. It is all by grace. And it's interesting that Paul begins this off by saying, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Because if you've ever served the Lord, you know it's a sacrifice. Anything worthwhile is a sacrifice. There's an element of sacrifice to it. We talked about that last week. See, Christianity isn't about others serving you. It's about you Serving others. That's what the body of Christ is. It's about you laying your life down for other people. Now, why on earth would you want to do that? Because that's what Jesus did for us. There's this account in Mark's gospel, and it's so typical. You've got the, you know, the, all this stuff going on. And James and Mark come to God and to Jesus. They're like, hey, uh, when you come into your kingdom... We want the number one and number two job. I want to be on your left. He wants to be on your right. How's about it, man? And so what happens is that the other 10 disciples hear it and they lose their mind. That's kind of a rough translation of the words that are used in, in Mark's gospel in the Greek. Seriously, they, are, they, they wig out. They're indignant. And Jesus called them to himself, Mark 10, 42. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them and yet it shall not be among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all for even, Mark 10, 45, son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Love Diedrich Bonhoeffer's quote. He says, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Are you ready to die for the things of the Lord today? Because that's what your role is here in the body of Christ. Come and die. Take up your cross. Deny yourself daily. And follow after the Lord.